Welcome to Audiobook Test Drive. In today's episode, we are featuring an excerpt from Murder at the War Plant, classic novel of romance, mystery, and sabotage in World War II, written by Clarence Buddington Kelland. Murderers and saboteurs are no match for Nancy. A classic novel of romance and mystery in a World War II factory. Meet Nancy Youngblood, a blithe and vivid heroine of an investigating disposition. When Nancy inherits a minor interest in a factory soon to become vital to the winning of World War II, she sees it as a chance to get closer to Robert Dalhart, who has taken over the factory on his father's death. Nancy has always loved him, but because they grew up together on the same block, Robert thinks of her as a kid sister. But soon sabotage, murder, and strikes threaten the plant and Robert, who evidence suggests may be the culprit, perhaps as an agent of the German government. Nancy's heart tells her he is innocent despite the incriminating circumstances. But when the body of an unidentified man is found behind the house opposite hers, she begins to suspect something much larger and more sinister is involved. Nancy braves threats, kidnapping, and even Robert's interest in a very attractive woman to save him from being wrongly arrested and tried. But nothing deters her from attempting to solve the mystery and rescue the man she loves from the slings of ill fortune until she finds herself helpless in the hands of a ruthless killer. And now for your listening pleasure, an excerpt from Murder at the War Plant. Part 1 The door opened in the red-brick house with the cupola, and Nancy Youngblood crossed the front stoop to skip blithely down the steps to the street. The red-brick house had been built by Nancy's maternal grandfather nearly fifty years before, but even so, it was not the oldest house in the block. There was something arrestingly vivid and curiously spry about her movements. There was a certain eager intensity, as if each moment were so valuable that she must drink it to its last drop before it passed, which she usually did. If each moment had been a cup of coffee, Nancy would have drunk it and then scraped the bottom for the last remaining grain of sugar. She did not think of herself as a contradictory young person whose character was made up of incongruous emotions and attributes. Nobody thinks of himself as incongruous, because very few individuals are given to introspection, and regard themselves as each one a norm with which to compare other people's eccentricities. She was a very observing young woman. It is true that she was impulsive, adventurous, reckless at times. She had been accused of carelessness, some people said she was headstrong and heedless and apt to jump to conclusions. So this quality of observation seemed a strange tenant of her extraordinarily beautiful little body. It was a thing that annoyed her sometimes because she found herself observing when it would have been so much more fun doing. She noticed little things and remembered them. For instance... She could not climb a flight of stairs without counting them, and a year afterwards she could tell you exactly how many steps there had been. 
If she went into a strange room, she would come out again with a complete inventory of its contents and a picture of the position of each object. If she went into a familiar room, and some unimportant object had been moved from its accustomed place, she noticed it, and could not be quite happy until she knew the reason for it. She did not do it on purpose. She could not help it to save her life. For instance now, as she turned to the right towards 12th Street, although she was almost grimly bent upon a definite objective, she noticed that the window shade of the third window from the left on the second floor of the Turner house was up some ten inches and crooked. She had never seen that window shade raised before, except in house-cleaning time, and that either of the Turner sisters should have raised it crookedly was as unthinkable as that the sun should rise in the west. She noticed also now that on the piazza of the frame house with the mansard roof, Mrs. Nolan sat with Mrs. Hickman, her next-door neighbor, and that as these ladies became aware of her, their conversation stopped and they scrutinized her with critical eyes. She did not know that the eyes also were envious, nor could she hear what presently was said. There, said Mrs. Hickman, using the softest tones of her cultured voice, goes an incipient trollop. Mrs. Nolan's voice was neither soft nor so studiously cultured. It was brisk. What do you mean, incipient? she asked. It goes on every morning, Mrs. Hickman said. She comes out at the exact minute. You can set your clock by her. Then she dawdles until he appears. I shouldn't think Robert Dalhart would be her kind of apple, observed Mrs. Hickman. He wears pants, doesn't he? Many do, answered Mrs. Hickman. The incipient trollop continued to dawdle. She did not look like the thing Mrs. Noland had called her. She looked like a young lady in a perfectly fitting saffron sports dress. Her face was not that sort of face. It was not beautiful, but rather on the thin side, with high bones in the cheeks and flat planed below, with eyebrows that tilted a bit upward at the outer corners, and a curious but interesting sort of mouth. It was an acute face, and an adventurous face. If the rest of her had matched her face, it would never have occurred to Mrs. Nolan to apply epithets to her, but the rest of her was undeniably beautiful, rather startlingly so. With most women of satisfyingly excellent confirmation, the beholder says, very neat, and passes on to other matters of interest. But when one saw Nancy he could not pass on to other topics. One result was that women, and especially such women as Mrs. Noland and Mrs. Hickman, knew immediately that she could not be nice. No girl who went boldly about the world flaunting such a figure could be nice. When you add to this Nancy's attitude towards the world, and especially the masculine world, the fat distinctly is in the fire. Even when she was a small girl, there had been raised eyebrows because she had preferred boys and the interests and activities of boys to girls and the feminine concerns of girlhood. She had been what used to be referred to as a tomboy. By nature, she loved the adventurous. 
She was one of those rare, small girls who were accepted by boys as a boy, and she was good at the things they did. She could even throw a ball like a boy. Not that Nancy was not feminine. It would be impossible to be more so in its finest sense, but superimposed upon her femininity was a masculine ability to do things and to enjoy things and to think things as a nice boy would do. Her attitude towards boys had been one of comradeship. Now that she was grown up, her attitude towards men was much the same. Women persisted in misunderstanding all this. They said she was man-crazy. It was not at all the truth in the sense in which they meant it, but it left her reputation rather in tatters. Because she was so utterly wholesome in her attitude towards and her conduct with men, Mrs. Hickman could marshal no facts to substantiate the charge that Nancy was an incipient trollop. She continued to dawdle until a conservative small car emerged from the driveway of the large stone house across the street. It was driven by a young man. Nancy halted and waved her hand. Hi, Bob, she called. The small car moved slower and then stopped. Morning, Nance, responded Robert Dalhart. Then his face assumed the expression of a man suddenly recognizing a fact. What, again? This makes about a dozen mornings in a row that I've met you right here. Seventeen, said Nancy in a matter-of-fact voice. What causes it? asked Robert. Mrs. Hickman probably says I'm lying in wait for you. Rats, exclaimed Bob with the manner of a man towards a girl he has known since she had holes in the knees of her stockings. Why would you be lying in wait for me? Object matrimony, said Nancy. Move over. I've got no time to be driving you places. I'm going to the factory. Nevertheless, move over, she said and opened the door. You're a bloody nuisance, he said. Where to? Just jog along at a breathtaking thirty miles an hour, she said. I'll tell you when to discharge the load. You don't make sense, he complained. That she said, is because you don't understand strategy. They reached the corner and turned to the left. Nancy exhaled audibly. I always draw a long breath when I get off the block, she said. The block, he answered, is swell. So were stagecoaches and red flannel underwear. The block is smug. The block said Bob avuncularly, represents all that is best and finest in American life. Amid deafening applause, the speaker of the evening resumed his seat, said Nancy. In you, said Bob, are focused all the more noxious doodads of the younger generation. And in the block, said Nancy, are compressed all the most stifling fuddy-duddy qualities of the older generation, she scowled with ferocity. The block, the great bloody stupid block, she exclaimed. Everybody in Carthage referred to it as the block. Of course, there were hundreds of other blocks in the little city, but only one of them was entitled to capital letters. 
It was that stretch of Central Avenue between 11th and 12th Streets. And it was as much an institution as the public library or the domed courthouse. Carthage was proud of it, but concealed its pride by referring to the dwellers in the block as the upper crust, the nobility, or malefactors of great wealth. The block was old, but never shabby. There were repairs from time to time, but they were always in the nature of restorations and never alterations. The block remained the same. The newest house was nearly forty years old, and the recorder of deeds would have had to search far back in his records to discover when a parcel of property in this elite section had changed hands by sale. On the east side of the block were six houses, and on the west side were six. Almost without exception, they were ugly if you came to them with critical eye. But on the other hand, though most of them were large, everyone had about it that indefinite, imponderable something that made it homelike. The houses sat far back from the street. No fences or hedges separated the backyards, so that from one end of the block to the other, at the rear of the dwelling stretched a sort of park, which was used more or less in common by all the owners on either side. It gave to the block something of the character of a community. The Whitneys and the Stedmans and the Warners, the Resimans, the Loxleys, and the Youngbloods lived on the east side of the street. On the west side resided the Browns, Hickmans, Nolans, Joneses, and the Dahlharts and the Turners. Every family had its remote roots in New England. Fifty years ago, the heads of the families had gone to work in the morning, accoutred in silk hats, and had been carried to their places of business behind spanking teams of horses. Today, the heads went to work just as early, but the silk hats had vanished, and horses had surrendered to motor cars. That was about the only change. It was America of the 90s in modern dress. The largest and perhaps the solidest house in the block belonged to the Dalharts of the Dalhart Manufacturing Company. It was constructed out of some curious cut stone that resembled Castile soap. Its rooms were large and its ceilings high. Its architectural excellence was negligible, but in its way it was imposing. It was from the stables at the rear of this erection that Robert Dalhart had driven his car. He was the son of the family. There was also a grandmother in her eighties, but spry. There was Robert's father, Homer, present head of the Dalhart Manufacturing Company, and his wife, Lillian, and their daughter, Margaret. Margaret was a graduate of Smith College. Robert had acquired his formal education at the University of Michigan. On the whole, had you scrutinized the Dalhart family in the month of July, you would have voted it the least likely of any family in the United States to stand in any peril, domestic, social, or financial. It was closely knit, solidly entrenched. Father, said Nancy Youngblood, has the only sense of humor between 11th and 12th streets. I'm often very comical myself, answered Bob. Rarely on purpose. Nancy said sweetly. Did you ever stop to think, she asked, that if I were a man, I might have a good job in your factory? 
I'm not given to nightmares, said Bob. I would, said Nancy, insist upon recognition. You know, rights of minorities and that sort of thing. You get your dividends, don't you? he asked. Plenty, answered Nancy. But nobody ever pays any attention to me. I own 25% of your old factory, don't I? I mean, I do, not Dad or anybody else. It's a good thing to own, Bob said. Mighty lucky your grandfather went in with my grandfather. And he left it to Mother, and Mother left it to me. So it's mine. And all I get is dividends. I never have any of the fun. Drop around some day and run the freight elevator, Bob invited genially. Or better yet, call up some morning and give Dad an earful of good advice. He'd like it. Nancy grinned. It was not a smile, it was a grin. Wouldn't he pop, she exclaimed. But the advice might be swell at that. Did anybody ever tell you how smart I am? I never listen to malicious gossip, said Bob. Father consults with me lots of times, about important things, too. Your father, said Bob, is a lawyer. He said it almost as he might have said that Mr. Youngblood was an artist. Mr. Youngblood did not deal in ponderables. He owned no factory, or store, or hotel, or bank. There were no premises through which you could conduct a visiting delegation, only a desk and a library and a shrewd brain. That was not solid as the block appraised solidity. You're smug, said Nancy. I am not smug. If somebody dug a mine in you, they would bring up tons and tons of smug, she retorted. It's not your fault. It's the occupational disease of the block, which I have escaped. She paused. I wonder what you would do if something unexpected ever happened. We hope you enjoyed listening to this excerpt from Murder at the War Plant. If you would like to hear the entire audiobook, it can be purchased at Amazon.com, Audible.com, and iTunes.com.